let's hear God's word and we know that it's living and that it's active. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, and treat you dear and Cynthia, Cynthia, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, uh, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And we thank God for his word. And just as Alexander comes up, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is sharp and that it is active, that it is true and that we can trust it. And Father, we thank you so much that every time that we read of it, you speak to us. Father, we pray that this evening that you would open our ears. Father, open our hearts, put away all distractions, put away all tiredness here this evening, that you would close us in with yourself, that your spirit would dwell richly in this room and that you would move in our hearts. Father, warm our hearts, kindle the fire that is in our hearts, challenge our hearts here this evening, challenge our minds. 
And Father, for Alexandra, we thank you so much for her. We thank you for her passion and her desire to live a faithful life, to walk in purity. And Father, we pray for her as she comes to speak, that her words would be your words here this evening, that you would take away all nerves, that you would give her great boldness as she speaks for you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight we are, we've reached the last chapter of Philippians, so let me just bring you up to speed with a little summary. Um, Paul, at this point, has been a Christian for about 30 years. Um, about 11 years prior to this, he planted the church in Philippi. And he's been there for about, he hadn't been there for about four years, um, and he's had a really pretty rough time. Okay, so he's been shipwrecked a few times, he's been homeless, he's been beaten, he's been left for dead on the open sea. Um, It's not great. And at this point of the story, he finds himself in prison um, and he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. News of the church has reached him and this is his response. So he's sitting in jail, he writes a letter to his friends and he deals with a few issues, which we've been talking about this week. Um, The first of them, If you flick on a slide, um, there's been a little bit of division um, among the leaders in their church. Um, Second, there's been a bit of anxiety um, among the people in the church of Philippi, um, and they're all feeling it. And then he goes on to talk about God's provision and his own contentment and how he can be content in the knowledge that God will provide all of his needs. And finally, he finishes the letter speaking a little bit about the generosity um, of the Philippian people. Yeah, no, that's good, Andrew, thank you. Um, (laughs) That was worth the smart art graphic. So, first of all, next. You all see it. Those are the points we're covering. Um, And all of those points eventually sort of, it's, when I initially read it, I was like, that's a little bit bitty. That's not going to flow well. But it all comes down to following the guidelines that Paul has given us in scripture. And it's how to live for Christ. And in doing so, we witness to others um, and we end up being shining lights for him. So the first issue that we come to is the issue of division. Um, God's people are to have unity. We're told that throughout the Bible. Um, Jesus tells us in places like John 17, Father, my prayer is that we would be as one. Um, Secondly, Paul commands it throughout the New Testament. Um, And unity can sometimes be difficult in a church. Um, There are many, many reasons um, for division. Some of them are very obvious sins, um, sexual sins, theft, you know, things that are very obvious. Some of them are very subtle jealousy and bitterness um my ideology is better than yours my theology is better than yours um things like pride can creep in and that's really really dangerous um sometimes it's a matter of false teaching sometimes it's a matter of legalism um sometimes it's a matter of distrust but there are two people in this church who have had a conflict of sorts we don't know why and it's quite possible although it's not specifically stated that this has enveloped the whole church okay unfortunately that happens in our churches more often than we'd like to admit something happens between two people and everybody takes sides and it's unhelpful and a division between two people can become a division between 200 people Um, and we've seen that happen Um, and it's got to this point where it's reached Paul in his jail cell and it's so serious that he has to dedicate a portion of the bible to it Okay, so picking up in chapter four, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So two women, Yodia and Syntica, um, their names are given because apparently it's such a big issue that everybody knows who they are. Um, are they Christians? Yes. Their names are written in the book of life. Um, are they mature Christians? Probably. Um, he says that they've contended with him at his side for the cause of the gospel. Um, does he mention any false teaching, any heresy? No. No, he doesn't. And let me tell you something about Paul. He is not a card. Okay, if there was false doctrine, he would tell you about it. Um, you can go to Galatians and you can read his absolutely scathing rebuke of false teachers. Okay, he's not backwards. He tells them that they should just go and castrate themselves. Okay, it's fairly blunt. Um, there's no mention of false doctrine. There's no mention of misconduct. He tells the Corinthians, you know, tell that guy to stop sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, he's blunt. He addresses these things, but he doesn't in this instance. Does it matter? No. If it mattered, the Bible would tell us, but it doesn't. So we don't know what the issue is, but we do know that it had become a point of division. Um, and so Paul says what they need is a mediator. Um, so if you look at it, it says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side. So this could be... Um, some sort of leader in the church, a biblical counsellor, a pastor, a minister, um, somebody like that who can draw alongside these women um, and start to mediate that division. And that's a really useful thing um, for us as Christians to recognise as a way to deal with division. Um, sometimes it's very useful to have somebody to come along and to hear both sides of a story. Um, if you can't agree with someone, I mean, you'll not always agree with someone, but that doesn't mean that you can't have unity and you can't have fellowship with them. Um, so he comes alongside, um, well he should, that's what Paul asked them to do. Um, it says in Proverbs that everyone seems right till the other side of the case is heard. That's the job of the mediator, um, to hear both sides. And if you have a sibling, you'll know this is true, okay? It's not who tells the truth, it's who tells the story first, right? You need to hear both sides to get a fair judgment. Um, so if we have division um, or a lack of unity how should we deal with it what can we learn from what Paul tells us um, well first of all look at how he addresses them he says therefore my brothers whom I love and whom I long for okay he tells them how much he loves them to begin with he calls them his joy and his crown okay he states the importance that they have in his life and how much they mean to him um he then goes on um, to talk about in the Lord, he says, he keeps the confrontation Christ-centered, okay? So he says that it needs to be dealt with. A lot of the times we try and sweep these things under the carpet. That's not helpful. At best, it leads to a very shallow unity. Okay, Paul says it needs to be dealt with, but it needs to be dealt with in a Christ-centered manner. Hopefully they work it out, but we don't know. So far they haven't. And as a result of this, it is possible that the people in the church are very anxious. Now, of this part, I am unsure. If you flick to the next slide, um, verses 4 to 9, it then goes on to say that you should be anxious. Um, nothing. Um, now, that could be a result. The people could be anxious because of the division, or it could be a separate point. 
I'm unsure. You can ask our in-house theologians afterwards for clarification on that point. But either way, there is great anxiety in the church in Philippi. People are stressed and people are annoyed. And this issue of anxiety is something that um, affects us very much um, in our day-to-day lives. And anxiety, if you were to define it in a sort of a non-clinical terminology, it's predicting the future in a sort of a worst possible scenario type way. Okay, it's kind of like you're being a prophet, but a prophet of doom, and most usually a false prophet, okay, because things tend to not work out like that. Um, You wear yourself down so that you get to the point of anxiety and you're freaked out and you lose your head and you don't know what to do. Okay, this is not good. At this point, let me um, make a distinction, okay, because it's important. Medically, there are six forms of anxiety disorder and that includes obsessive compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that okay that's different all right if someone has chemical hormonal biological imbalances that they have no control over that is different but in this instance where we just get ourselves so annoyed and so wound up that we can't really cope anymore we have to ask ourselves does god have anything to say about that does the bible have anything to say about that And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. Coincidentally, in Philippians 4. And so Paul gives us eight disciplines or practices surrounding this idea of anxiety that we can integrate into our daily lives to help us. And the first one is this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And some of you are like, I mean, you hear it in songs, but now that I think about it, always that can't be right. That's all the time. And if we translate that back to the Greek, that's not possibly what it means, but it is. Okay. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And you're like, are you sure that what it means, Paul? And he's like, I'll say it again, rejoice. Okay. He knew you'd ask twice. So he said it twice. Um, we need to anchor our joy in Jesus and not our circumstances. Circumstances change. Jesus doesn't circumstances if they determine whether you're happy or sad they will rule over you okay he said we should rejoice in the lord always now what that isn't is rejoicing in your circumstances it's rejoicing through your circumstances because you have jesus if you're very very sick and you're ill in bed it's very hard to rejoice in those circumstances but you can rejoice that jesus is with you and there is always always a reason to rejoice that is what paul is saying rejoice always all the time you always have that reason, okay? If you're dying, you'll be with him forever. Rejoice. Secondly, he says, respond reasonably. Um, Some of the translations will say gently. When we're very emotional, when we're very freaked out, when we're anxious, when we're stressed, we have a tendency as people to be unreasonable, okay? We get sarky and we get irritable and we get very snappy. Um, I am very guilty of this when I am stressed. I kind of thank you, Andrew, for the confirmation. (laughs) Um, Some of the translations say gentle. Um, My default when I'm stressed is not usually to be gentle. I don't normally sit there freaking out and be like, do you know what I feel like being gentle? Yeah, that's right. Um, It's not our default. It's not anybody's default. And so to respond reasonably, that's something that we need help um, from God. It's a miracle. It's a God thing. It isn't something that you naturally have in yourself. This is something that we need to pray about. Thirdly, he says that know that Jesus is always with you. Okay, that's what he says. The Lord is close. Jesus said that he will never leave you 
or forsake you. Um, when you're stressed out, freaked out, anxious um, because of different friend circumstances, because of different family situations, um, if you feel very isolated, if you're lonely, if you feel abandoned, Jesus is with you. He is your high priest. He is your friend. He is your king. He is your father. And he will never leave your side. Don't forget that. Number four, don't ever be anxious about anything. Now again, you're like, Paul, about anything? Really? What if I have good reason? And Paul says, you don't. Um, And some of you might say, well, Paul, I don't think you understand because I got my results this week and they're not what I wanted them to be and I am very stressed and very anxious and very worried about my future and blah, 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 blah. And Paul says, you're right, I don't understand because I'm in jail awaiting execution. So there you go. Paul gets it and he still says, don't be anxious about anything. And he means anything. If your anxiety um, is in control, you're stating that anxiety is God. Um, and anxiety is in charge of your life, not Jesus. Um, it's in charge of your emotions, not Jesus. Instead of responding to the cause of your anxiousness, you need to respond to Jesus. It's like Tove was telling us earlier about all the emotions they were teaching the kids in kids club and how they should respond to them. It doesn't mean that you overlook really difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean that you pretend things are perfect. But it does mean that there will be a continual opportunity for you to respond anxiously or respond with rejoicing. Paul says, rejoice. His next point is, number five, that you should pray. You should pray, he says, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Okay, talk to Jesus. Some people find it very difficult to pray. Andrew admitted that on Monday night. I would say the same thing. Um, For some of you, you are trained to pray in a very rote manner, in a very formal manner. It doesn't have to be like that. You're talking to your father. You can tell him anything and everything. Some of you might not want to talk to Jesus about the things that you're stressed about. I don't know why. You might be worried that he would be disappointed, but that you give me a heads up. He already knows. So you may as well talk to him about it. Um, You know, I'm not going to go to him and say, you know, I'm stressed out about this and I'm worried about this. And he's going to be like, Alexandra, you caught me off guard. I didn't know that. He knows. So go and talk to him. Go to pray. Go and pray to him. Pray it out until the peace of God comes and the anxiety lifts. Choose to be anxious in nothing. Paul is saying that you can choose not to be anxious. You go and you pray and you talk with Jesus. Number six then, he says, if you flick on a slide, Andrew, thank you. Um, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, you could have an entire, like, month's worth of sermons on that sentence. Um, Whatever is just. Are you acting justly or unjustly? Are you seeking vengeance or reconciliation? Okay, think about your motivations. Whatever is pure, are your motives pure? Are your words pure? Are your thoughts pure? What are you filling your head with? Is it pure? What are you watching on TV and Netflix? Is it pure? Is it? 
In an unfortunate set of circumstances, enough people in the UK have an IQ low enough to enjoy Love Island so that they're putting it on two times a year. That's disappointing. Okay? It's not good for you. It's trash and it's not pure. Game of Thrones. I've heard people say it's not for young Christians. It's not for Christians. 13 reasons why. Don't watch it. The list is so endless. Okay, don't fill your head with stuff that is not pure and that is not lovely. Are your thoughts lovely? Are your words lovely? If they're lovely in person, are they as lovely on social media? Are they equally as lovely behind people's backs? Is your attitude lovely? Is your prayer life lovely? Is your witness to others lovely? Is it commendable? Would other mature Christians say, you know, I've really seen a change in so-and-so. I can really see the difference. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about Jesus. Think about scripture. Think about his goodness to you. Think about how you are to respond instead of react so that you can rejoice instead of having anxiety. And number seven, um, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Okay, Live according to your theology, not according to your anxiety. If you believe that God is good, act like it. If you believe that God is sovereign, act like it. If you believe that he works out all things for the good of those who love him, act like it. Because if you don't, it's the definition of hypocrisy. Okay, put these things into practice. And lastly, accept the peace of God. Um, When he says this, if you live a certain disciplined life doing these things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will be given to you as a gift. And it won't make any sense that you're not freaking out. Because to the rest of society, these things are stressful. Okay? But people should look at you and wonder why you're not stressed. And it's because Jesus took away your sin and you have peace with God and you know he controls your life, every single element of it. And that brings us peace beyond understanding. So those are the eight disciplines that sort of surround that central point of anxiety. If we move on then to verse 10, Paul starts to talk about God's provision Um, So 10 to 13 is on the screen there. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have reviewed your concern for me, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So I'm going to assume that none of us, including myself, could really truly say that we are content. Um... He says that he knows how to be brought low, how to be absolutely poor on hard times. He knows how to abound, how to have more than enough. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Are you content? The opposite of being content is to covet, which is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Um, It's a big deal, but in our culture, it's expected. Um, so-and-so has two cars and I only have one car and they have a bigger house and they have nicer clothes than me and their clothes all have labels and they have designer school bags and the list goes on and their TV is bigger than mine and it has way more pixels and just FYI 
from an anatomical point of view, your eye can only take in so many pixels, and we have now reached the point in technology where they'll add pixels to the TV, and your eye can't see the difference. Okay, don't be sucked in. Right, you don't need a bigger TV. Um, thank you. Um, but God's provision um, of day by day grace enables Paul to be filled or to be hungry, to prosper or to suffer, to have abundance or to go wanting, and he is content. He has the grace of God. When he says, I can do all things, he really means all things. He doesn't just mean the easy things. He says, through Christ, I can hunger and suffer and be in want. And he puts the promise of Philippians um, 4.19 into a proper light. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What does every need of yours mean? It means all that you need for a God-glorifying contentment. That may include times of hunger, times of need. But Paul's love for the Philippians flowed from his contentment in God and his contentment flowed from faith in the future grace of God's infallible provision to be all that he needed. It's also clear in Hebrews 13.5, it says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that promise breaks the power of covetousness. Whenever we see the the slightest rise of covetousness in our hearts, um, we have to fight it with everything that we have. Okay, He is all we need and all we will ever need. And finally, the last point that Paul makes to the church in Philippi, he starts to talk about their generosity. Um, So if we move on to that section... To give you an idea, the church in Philippi are the most generous church in the New Testament. Um, They are repeatedly referred to for being good stewards, um, being generous givers. And by a steward, I just mean someone who has a job, um, a responsibility to look after, to take care of something. Okay, so we're called to be stewards of God's earth. Okay, we're called to look after creation. We're also called to be stewards of money, good stewards of money. So, for example, if we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the church in Philippi is lifted up to the church in Corinthia um, of what a good, giving, generous church should look like um, and how it should conduct itself. And so, in many ways, one of the greatest examples we could have in all church history is the church in Philippi. Um, They understood some things biblically that helped shape their view of wealth and finances and income. The Bible talks an awful lot about money, um, money, wealth, finances, possessions and the like are mentioned about 800 times across the two testaments um, Jesus dedicated about 25% of his teaching um, on money so if John and Andrew want to practice that one Sunday a month on money, every month um, and in Second Corinthians 8 and 9 Paul lays out four different criteria those of us who are Christians um, should decide how much Um, to give and he says that our giving should be sacrificial regular cheerful and proportional and saying that it's sacrificial um, means if you're very affluent and very rich and very wealthy um, the church was expected to give a tithe 10% if you're mega wealthy 10% you know it's not that much you're still really wealthy at the end of it that's not sacrificial Um, for a single mother who's struggling to make ends meet 10% is potentially too much. And the church should look at whether we can help her instead of take money off her. 
Secondly, he says it should be regular. That can be daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. It has to be regular. Thirdly, he says it should be cheerful. It should be an act of worship. This is the one way I get to demonstrate my love for God, who has loved me so well and has provided for me so well. And then fourthly, he says proportional. It should be according to what you have, not what you don't have. Okay, You look at what you have, you ask God what he would have you do with it. And so in giving these four principles in 2 Corinthians, Paul is extolling the Philippian church because in that section he's telling the Corinthians, if you want to know how to give, look at the church in Philippi. Follow their example. So Paul hasn't seen them for four years. He'd planted the church 11 years ago. He's in prison. He asked for nothing. They took a special offering, a lot of money. They handed it to a man named Epaphroditus, and he brought that gift to Paul in prison. Paul was so great, he wrote the letter. That is the book that we're reading this week. And he says in 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul is broke, he's in prison. Um, And he says, the Philippians are attentive and gracious people. Okay, here's my question to you. If you take expression, okay, take this week out of your calendar, who have you helped this year? Could you make a list of people? I hope so. Some of you, a lot of you are in school, you might not have a lot of money, but you have gifts and you have skills and you have time. Who have you helped? Are you a generous person? And see, what Paul is saying is that he loves the Philippians because they were attentive. They didn't wait for Paul to ask. They didn't wait for him to beg. They paid attention. Okay? A good steward is looking for opportunities to take the resources that God has given him and to use them in a way that helps people and honor him. He says in verses 15 and 16, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul says that they're generous. And you might say, well, I mean, it's easy for them to be generous. They were mega rich. No, they weren't. If you read Corinthians, it says that their generosity welled up out of their poverty. They weren't rich people, they were good stewards. That's the difference. And there's this myth um, that I have fallen for. It says, God, once you make me rich, I will be a better steward. Hmm. I would say, if you're a bad steward, why would God make you rich? Um, And I'm not saying that to get you. I'm saying that in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about the good steward and the bad steward. And he says that a good steward is one that when you give resources to them, they multiply it. They are prudent and they are wise. And a bad steward is one who does not give a good return on investment. And Jesus says, if I can trust you with a little, then I will trust you with a lot. Um, He goes on in verse 17 in chapter 4. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Listen to that language, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, a fragrant offering. It's the language of worship. Okay, When we bring an offering to God, it's an act of worship. We're not bringing our own money. We're giving back what he has given us. And it goes on in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, some prosperity gospel teachers will quote this um, verse and they'll say, see, God will give you whatever you want as long as you have enough faith. 
He'll give you whatever you want. Now, given that Paul is sitting on the floor in prison, this is unlikely. Okay, that's not what this says. It says God will give you your needs. What you need and what you want, two very different things. Okay, this has become ever apparent to me this week. Given my news at the weekend, what I need is a marriage license at 50 pounds, a minister and some witnesses. What I want is slightly different. What the internet tells me I need is slightly different. This week I have seen that you can get, I should get, according to their website, a wedding carpet. They will rule it out for me in the church so I can walk on it. They will rule it up. They will bring it to the reception. They will rule it out again so I can walk on it. And this is the best bet. Then they cut it up into little squares and give it out as wedding favours. So as my guests, you get a square of the carpet that I walked on. (laughs) This is what the internet says I need, okay? Very different needs and wants, not the same thing. So he's not saying that God will give you everything you want. He's saying that he will meet your needs. In verse 20, he says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So the last question Do we glorify God in all that we do, including contextually here, our giving? And what do we mean by glorify God? It means that God is loving and we glorify him when we are loving. God cares for people, we glorify him when we care for people. When we as a church strive for unity and not division, we glorify him. When we trust him with all aspects of our lives, when we don't let anxiety rule, we glorify him. When we recognize his provision and are content in him and him alone, we glorify him. God loves the church, and as we give to our church, we're glorifying him. And as we do all these things, we live for Christ, and we witness to those around us as shining lights. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it has to say to us. Lord, we ask that if there's any among us tonight that are not in a good place with other people, if there's division and not unity, we ask that you would speak into the hearts of those people and that's what they would strive for. Lord, I ask you to be with all of those that feel anxious or worried or stressed, particularly given the last few weeks of results. Lord, please help them know that you're in complete control of every single aspect of their lives. You have them right in the palm of your hand and that you will make a path for them. Lord, I pray that all of us would find contentment in you and in you alone and not in the things of this world. And I ask, Lord, that as you provide for us, we would give back generously to you and glorify you as we do it. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. You can all stand as we come to worship again.